and though many more or even all men were to have been pardoned and saved, the sacrifice of Christ would have been amply sufficient as the grounds or basis of their salvation. Just as it is necessary for the sun to give off as much heat if only one plant is to grow upon the earth, as if the earth is to be covered with vegetation, so it is necessary for Christ to suffer as much if only one soul was to be saved, as if a large number or even all mankind were to be saved. Since the sinner had offended against a person of infinite dignity and had been sentenced to suffer eternally, nothing but a sacrifice of infinite value could atone for him. No one assumes that since the sin of Adam was the ground for the condemnation of the race, he sinned so much for one man and so much for another, and would have sinned more if there were to have been more sinners. Why then should they make the assumption in regard to the suffering of Christ? 3. The atonement is limited in purpose and application. While the value of the atonement was sufficient to save all mankind, it was efficient to save only the elect. It is indifferently as well adapted to the salvation of one man as to that of another, thus making the salvation of every man objectively possible. Yet because of subjective difficulties arising on account of the sinner's own inability either to see or appreciate the things of God, only those are saved who are regenerated and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The reason why God does not apply this grace to all men has not been fully revealed. When the atonement is made universal, its inherent value is destroyed. If it is applied to all men, and if some are lost, the conclusion is that it makes salvation objectively possible for all, but that it does not actually save anybody. According to the Arminian theory, the atonement has simply made it possible for all men to cooperate with divine grace and thus save themselves, if they will. But tell us of one cured of disease and yet dying of cancer, and the story will be equally luminous with that of one eased of sin and yet perishing through unbelief. The nature of the atonement settles its extent. If it merely made salvation possible, it applied to all men. If it effectively secured salvation, it had reference only to the elect. As Dr. W. Warfield says, the things we have to choose between are an atonement of high value or an atonement of wide extension. The two cannot go together. The work of Christ cannot be universalized only by evaporating its substance. Let there be no misunderstanding at this point. The Arminian limits the atonement as certainly as does the Calvinist. The Calvinist limits the extent of it in that he says it does not apply to all persons, although he has already been shown he believes that it is efficacious for the salvation of the large proportion of the human race, while the Arminian limits the power of it, for he says that in itself it does not actually save anybody. The Calvinist limits it quantitatively, but not qualitatively. The Arminian limits it qualitatively, but not quantitatively. For the Calvinists it is like a narrow bridge which goes all the way across the stream. For the Armenian it is like a great wide bridge which goes only halfway across. 
As a matter of fact, the Arminian places more severe limitations on the work of Christ than does the Calvinist. 4. Christ's work as a perfect fulfillment of the law. If the benefits of the atonement are universal and unlimited, it must have been what the Arminians represent it to have been, merely a sacrifice to blot out the curse which rested upon the race through the fall in Adam, a mere substitute for the execution of the law which God in his sovereignty saw fit to accept in lieu of what the sinner was bound to render, and not a perfect satisfaction which fulfilled the demands of justice. It would mean that God no longer demands perfect obedience as he did of Adam, but that he now offers salvation on lower terms. God then would remove legal obstacles and would accept such faith and evangelical obedience as the person with the graciously restored ability could render if he chose. The Holy Spirit, of course, aiding in a general way. Thus, grace would be extended in that God offers an easier way of salvation. He accepts 50 cents on the dollar, so to speak, since the crippled sinner can pay no more. On the other hand, Calvinists hold that the law of perfect obedience, which was originally given to Adam, was permanent, that God has never done anything which would convey the impression that the law was too rigid in its requirements or too severe in its penalty, or that it stood in need of either of abrogation or of derogation. Divine justice demands that the sinner shall be punished, either in himself or in his substitute. We hold that Christ acted in a strictly substitutionary way for his people, that he made a full satisfaction of their sins, thus blotting out the curse from Adam in all their temporal sins, in that by his sinless life he perfectly kept for them the law which Adam had broken, thus earning for his people the reward of eternal life. We believe that the requirement for salvation, now as originally, is perfect obedience, that the merits of Christ are imputed to his people as the only basis of their salvation, and that they enter heaven clothed only with the cloak of his perfect righteousness and utterly destitute of any merit properly their own. Thus, grace, pure grace, is extended not in lowering the requirements for salvation, but in the substitution of Christ for his people. He took their place before the law and did for them what they could not do for themselves. This Calvinistic principle is fitted in every way to impress upon us the absolute perfection an unchangeable obligation of the law which was originally given to Adam. It is not relaxed or set aside, but is fittingly honored so that its excellence is shown. In behalf of those who are saved, for whom Christ acted, and in behalf of those who are subjected to everlasting punishment, the law in its majesty is enforced and executed. If the Arminian theory were true, it would follow that millions of those for whom Christ died are finally lost, and that salvation is thus never applied to many of those for whom it was earned. What benefits, for instance, can we point to in the lives of the heathens and say that they have received them from the atonement? 
it would also follow that God's plans many times have been thwarted and defeated by his creatures, and that while he may do according to his will in the armies of heaven, he does not do so among the inhabitants of the earth. The sin of Adam, says Charles Hodge, did not make the condemnation of all men merely possible. It was the ground of their actual condemnation. So the righteousness of Christ did not make the salvation of men merely possible. It secured the actual salvation of those for whom he wrought. The great Baptist preacher Charles H. Spurgeon said, If Christ has died for you, you can never be lost. God will not punish twice for one thing. If God punished Christ for your sins, he will not punish you. Payment God's justice cannot twice demand, first at the bleeding Savior's hand, and then again at mine. How can God be just if he punished Christ, the substitute, and the man himself afterwards? 5. A Ransom Christ is said to have been a ransom for his people. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, verse 28. Notice this verse does not say that he gave his life a ransom for all, but for many. The nature of a ransom is such that when paid and accepted, it automatically frees the person for whom it was intended. Otherwise, it would not be a true ransom. Justice demands that those for whom it is paid shall be freed from any further obligation. If the suffering and death of Christ was a ransom for all men rather than for the elect only, then the merits of his work must be communicated to all alike and the penalty of eternal punishment cannot be justly inflicted on any. God would be unjust if he demanded this extreme penalty twice over, first for the substitute and then for the persons themselves. The conclusion then is that the atonement of Christ does not extend to all men, but that it is limited to those for whom he stood surety, that is, to those who compose his true church. 6. The Divine Purpose in Christ's Sacrifice If Christ's death was intended to save all men, then we must say that God was either unable or unwilling to carry out his plans. But since the work of God is always efficient, those for whom atonement was made and those who are actually saved must be the same people. Armenians suppose that the purposes of God are mutable and that his purposes may fail. In saying that he sent his Son to redeem all men, but that after seeing that such a plan could not be carried out, he elected those whom he foresaw would have faith and repent, they represent him as willing what never takes place as suspending his purposes and plans upon the volitions and actions of creatures who are totally dependent on him. No rational being who has the wisdom and power to carry out his plans intends what he never accomplishes or adopts plans for an end which is never attained. Much less would God, whose wisdom and power are infinite, work in this manner. We may rest assured that if some men are lost, God never purposed their salvation and never devised and put into operation means designed to accomplish that end. Jesus himself limited the purpose of his death when he said, I lay down my life for the sheep. If, therefore, he laid down his life for the sheep, 
the toning character of his work was not universal. On another occasion he said to the Pharisee, Ye are not my sheep, and again, Ye are of your father the devil. Will anyone maintain that he lay down his life for these, seeing that he so pointedly excludes them? The angel which appeared to Joseph told him that Mary's son was to be called Jesus, because his mission in the world was to save his people from their sins. He then came not merely to make salvation possible, but actually to save his people. And what he came to do, we may confidently expect him to have accomplished. Since the work of God is never in vain, those who are chosen by the Father, those who are redeemed by the Son, and those who are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, or in other words, election, redemption, and sanctification, must include the same persons. The Arminian doctrine of a universal atonement makes these unequal and thereby destroys the perfect harmony within the Trinity. Universal redemption means universal salvation. Christ declared that the elect and the redeemed were the same people when in the intercessory prayer he said, Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me. And I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me. For they are thine, and all things that are mine are thine, and thine are mine. And I am glorified in them. John 17, verses 6, 9, and 10. And again, I am the good shepherd, and I know mine own, and mine own know me, even as the Father knoweth me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10, verses 14 and 15. The same teaching is found when we are told to feed the church of the Lord, which he purchased with his own blood. Acts 20, verse 28. We are told that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Ephesians 5:25, And that he laid down his life for his friends. John 15:13. Christ died for such as were Paul and John, not for such as were Pharaoh and Judas, who were goats and not sheep. We cannot say that his death was intended for all unless we say that Pharaoh, Judas, etc. were of the sheep, friends, and church of Christ. Furthermore, when it is said that Christ gave his life for his church, or for his people, we find it impossible to believe that he gave himself as much for reprobates as for those whom he intended to save. Mankind is divided into two classes, and what is distinctly affirmed of one is impliedly denied of the other. In each case, something is said of those who belong to one group which is not true of those who belong to the other. When it is said that a man labors and sacrifices health and strength for his children, it is thereby denied that the motive which controls him is merely philanthropy or that the design he has in view is the good of society. And when it is said that Christ died for his people, it is denied that he died equally for all men. 7. The Exclusion of the Non-Elect It was not then a general and indiscriminate love of which all men were equally the objects, but a particular, mysterious, infinite love for his elect which caused God to send his Son into the world to suffer and die. Any theory which denies this great and precious truth, and which would explain away this love as merely indiscriminate benevolence or philanthropy, 
which had all men for its object, many of whom are allowed to perish, must be unscriptural. Christ died not for an unordinary mass, but for his people, his bride, his church. A farmer prizes his field, but no one supposes that he cares equally for every plant that grows there, for the tares as well as the wheat. God's field is the world, Matthew 13:38, and he loves it with an exclusive eye to its good seed, the children of the kingdom, and not the children of the wicked one. It is not the whole of mankind that is equally loved of God and promiscuously redeemed by Christ, God is not necessarily communicative of his goodness as the sun of its light or of a tree of its cooling shade which does not choose its objects but serves all indifferently without variation or distinction. This would be to make God of no more understanding than the sun which shines not where it pleases but where it must. He is an understanding person and has a sovereign right to choose his own objects in Genesis we read that God put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now who were meant by the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent? On first thought we might suppose that the seed of the woman meant the entire human race descended from Eve. But in Galatians 3.16 Paul uses this term seed and applies it to Christ as an individual. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. On further investigation we also find that the seed of the serpent means not literal descendants of the devil, but those non-elect members of the human race who partake of his sinful nature. Jesus said of his enemies, Ye are of your father or the devil, and the lust of your father it is your will to do. John 8.44 Paul denounced Elimaeus the sorcerer as a son of the devil and an enemy of all righteousness. Judas is even called a devil, John 6.70. So the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are each a part of the human race. In other parts of the scriptures we find that Christ and his people are one, that he dwells in them and is united with them as the vine and the branches are united. And since at the very beginning God put enmity between these two groups, it is plain that he never loved all alike, nor intended to redeem all alike. Universal redemption and God's sentence on the serpents can never go together. There is also a parallel to be noticed between the high priest of ancient Israel and Christ who is our high priest, for the former, we are told, was a type of the latter. On the great day of atonement, the high priest offered sacrifices for the sins of the twelve tribes of Israel. He interceded for them and for them only. Likewise, Christ prayed not for the world, but for his people. The intercession of the high priest secured for the Israelites blessings from which all other peoples were excluded. In the intercession of Christ, which also is limited, but of a much higher order, shall certainly be efficacious in the highest sense. For him the Father hears always. Furthermore, it is not necessary that God's mercy shall extend to all men without exception before it can be truly and properly called infinite. For all men taken together would not constitute a multitude strictly and properly infinite. 
The scriptures plainly tell us that the devil and the fallen angels are left outside of his benevolent purposes. But his mercy is infinite in that it rescues the great multitude of his elect from the indescribable and eternal sin and misery to indescribable and eternal blessedness. While the Armenians hold that Christ died equally for all men and that he obtained sufficient grace to enable all men to repent, believe, and persevere, if they will only cooperate with it, they also hold that those who refuse to cooperate shall on their account and through all eternity be punished far more severely than if Christ had never died for them at all. We see that so far in the history of the human race the large proportion of the adult population have failed to cooperate and have thus been allowed to bring upon themselves greater misery than if Christ had never come. Surely a view which permits God's work of redemption to issue in such failure and which sheds so little glory on the atonement of Christ cannot be true. Vastly more of God's love and mercy for his people is seen in the Calvinistic doctrines of unconditional election and limited atonement than is seen in the Arminian doctrine of conditional election and unlimited atonement. 8. The argument from the foreknowledge of God. The argument from the foreknowledge of God is of itself sufficient to prove this doctrine. Is not God's mind infinite? Are not his perceptions perfect? Who can believe that he, like a feeble mortal, would shoot at the convoy without perceiving the individual birds? Since he knew beforehand who they were that would be saved, and the more evangelical Armenians admit that God does have exact foreknowledge of all events, he would not have sent Christ intending to save those who he positively foreknew would be lost. For, as Calvin remarks, where would have been the consistency of God's calling to himself, such as he knows, will never come. If a man knows that in an adjoining room there are ten oranges, seven of which are good and three of which are rotten, he does not go into the room expecting to get ten good ones. Or if it is foreknown that out of a group of fifty men to whom invitations to a banquet might be sent, a certain ten will not come, the host does not send out invitations expecting those ten as well as the others to accept. They do not deceive themselves who, admitting God's foreknowledge, say that Christ died for all men. For what is that but to attribute folly to him whose ways are perfect? To represent God as earnestly striving to do what he knows he will not do is to represent him as acting foolishly. 9. Certain benefits which extend to all mankind in general. In conclusion, let it be said that Calvinists do not deny that mankind in general receives some important benefits from Christ's atonement. Calvinists admit that it arrests the penalty which would have been inflicted upon the whole race because of Adam's sin, that it forms the basis for the preaching of the gospel and thus introduces many uplifting moral influences into the world and restrains many evil influences. Paul could say to the heathen people of Lystra that God left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave you from heaven rains and fruitful seasons, filling your hearts with food and gladness. Acts 14, verse 17. God makes his sun to shine on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust.
many temporal blessings are thus secured for all men, although these fall short of being sufficient to ensure salvation. Cunningham has stated the belief of Calvinists very clearly in the following paragraph. It is not denied by the advocates of particular redemption or of a limited atonement that mankind in general, even those who ultimately perish, do derive some advantages or benefits from Christ's death, and no position they hold requires them to deny this. They believe that important benefits have occurred to the whole human race from the death of Christ, and that in these benefits those who are finally impenitent and unbelieving partake. What they deny is that Christ intended to procure, or did procure, for all men these blessings which are the proper and peculiar fruits of his death, in its specific character as an atonement, that he procured or purchased redemption, that is, pardon and reconciliation for all men. Many blessings flow to all mankind at large from the death of Christ, collaterally and incidentally, in consequence of the relation in which men viewed collectively stand to each other. All these benefits were of course foreseen by God when he resolved to send his Son into the world. They were contemplated or designed by him as what men should receive and enjoy. They are to be regarded and received as bestowed by him in thus unfolding his glory, indicating his character, in actually accomplishing his purposes, and they are to be viewed as coming to men through the channel of Christ's mediation, of his suffering and death. There is then a certain sense in which Christ died for all men, and we do not reply to the Arminian tenet with an unqualified negative. But what we do maintain is that the death of Christ has special reference to the elect in that it was effectual for their salvation, in that the effects which are produced in others are only incidental to this one great purpose. Chapter 13, page 162, Efficacious Grace 1. Teaching of the Westminster Confession 2. Necessity for the Change 3. An inward change wrought by supernatural power 4 the effect produced in the soul. 5. The sufficiency of Christ's work, evangelism. 6. Armenian view of universal grace. 7. No violation of man's free agency. 8. Common grace. 1. Teaching of the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession states the doctrine of efficacious grace thus, all those whom God has predestinated unto life, and those only he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, 
not from anything at all foreseen in man who is altogether passive therein until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed by it. In the Shorter Catechism, in answer to the question, What is effectual calling? says, Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the Gospel. 2. Necessity for the change. The merits of Christ's obedience and suffering are sufficient for, adapted to, and freely offered to all men. The question then arises, why is one saved and another lost? What causes some men to repent and believe while others with the same external privileges reject the gospel and continue in impenitence and unbelief? The Calvinist says that it is God who makes this difference that he efficaciously persuades some to come to him, but the Arminian ascribes it to the men themselves. As Calvinists we hold that the condition of men since the fall is such that if left to themselves they would continue in their state of rebellion and refuse all offers of salvation. Christ would then have died in vain. But since it was promised that he should see the travail of his soul and be satisfied, the effects of that sacrifice have not been left suspended upon the whim of man's changeable and sinful will. Rather, the work of God in redemption has been rendered effective through the mission of the Holy Spirit, who so operates on the chosen people that they are brought to repentance and faith, and thus made heirs of eternal life. The teaching of the Scriptures is such that we must say that men in his natural state is radically corrupt in that he can never become holy and happy through any power of his own. He is spiritually dead and must be saved by Christ, if at all. Common reason tells us that if a man is so fallen, so to be at enmity with God, that enmity must be removed before he can have any desire to do God's will. If a sinner is to desire redemption through Christ, he must receive a new disposition. He must be born again, from above, John 3.3. 3. It is easy enough for us to see that the devil and the demons would have to be thus sovereignly changed if they were ever to be saved. Yet the innate sinful principles which actuate fallen men are of the same nature, although not yet so intense as are those which actuate fallen angels. If man is dead in sin, then nothing short of this supernatural life-giving power of the Holy Spirit would ever cause him to do that which is spiritually good. If it were possible for him to enter heaven while still possessed of the old nature, then for him heaven would be as bad as hell, for he would be out of harmony with his environment. He would loathe its very atmosphere and would be in misery when in the presence of God. Hence the necessity for the inward work of the Holy Spirit. In the nature of the case, the first movement toward salvation can no more come from man than his body, if dead, could originate its own life. Regeneration is a sovereign gift of God, graciously bestowed on those whom he has chosen, and for this great recreative work of God alone is complete.
it cannot be granted on the foresight of anything good in the subjects of this saving change, for in their unrenewed nature they are incapable of acts with right motives toward God, hence none could possibly be foreseen. In his unregenerate state, man never adequately realizes his utterly helpless condition. He imagines that he is able to reform himself and turn to God if he chooses. He even imagines that he is able to counteract the designs of infinite wisdom and to defeat the agency of omnipotence itself. As Dr. Warfield says, sinful man stands in need not of inducements or assistance to save himself, but precisely of saving. And Jesus Christ has come not to advise or urge or woo or help him to save himself, but to save him. 3. An inward change wrought by supernatural power. In the scriptures this change is called regeneration, Titus 3.5, a spiritual resurrection which is wrought by the same mighty power with which God wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, Ephesians 1.19 and 20, a calling out of darkness into God's marvelous light, 1 Peter 2.9, a passing out of death into life, John 5.24. A new birth, John 3.3. 3. A making alive, Colossians 2.13. A taking away of the heart of stone and giving of a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 11.19. And the subject of the change is said to be a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Such descriptions completely refute the Arminian notion that regeneration is primarily man's act, induced by moral persuasion or the mere influence of the truth as presented in a general way by the Holy Spirit. And just because this change is produced by power from on high, which is the living spirit of a new and recreated life, it is irresistible and permanent. The regeneration of the soul is something which is wrought in us and not an act performed by us. It is an instantaneous change from spiritual death to spiritual life. It is not even a thing of which we are conscious at the moment it occurs, but rather something which lies lower than consciousness. At the moment of its occurrence, the soul is as passive as was Lazarus when he was called back to life by Jesus. Concerning the soul in regeneration, Charles Hodge says, It is the subject and not the agent of the change. The soul cooperates or is active in what precedes in and what follows the change, but the change itself is something experienced and not something done. The blind and the lame who came to Christ may have undergone much labor in getting into his presence, and they joyfully exerted the new power imparted to them, but they were entirely passive in the moment of the healing. They in no way cooperated in the production of that effect. The same is true in regeneration. And again he says, the same doctrine on this subject is taught, in other words, when regeneration is declared to be a new birth. At birth the child enters upon a new state of existence. Birth is not its own act. It is born. It comes from a state of darkness in which the objects adapted to its nature cannot act on it or awaken its activities. As soon as it comes into the world, all its faculties are awakened. It sees, feels, hears, and gradually unfolds all its faculties as a rational and moral, as well 
as a physical being. The scriptures teach that it is thus in regeneration. The soul enters upon a new state. It is introduced into a new world. A whole class of objects before unknown or unappreciated are revealed to it and exercise upon it their appropriate influence. Regeneration involves an essential change of character. It is a making the tree good in order that the fruit may be good. As a result of this change, the person passes from a state of unbelief to one of saving faith, not by any process of research or argument, but of inward experience. And as we had nothing to do with our physical birth, but received it as a sovereign gift of God, we likewise have nothing to do with our spiritual birth, but receive it also as a sovereign gift. Each occurred without any exercise of our own power, or even without our consent being asked. We no more resist the latter than we resist the former. And as we go ahead and live our own natural lives after being born, so we go ahead and work out our own salvation after being regenerated. The scriptures pointedly teach that the prerequisite for entrance into the kingdom of God is a radical transformation wrought by the Spirit of God himself. And since this work on the soul is sovereign and supernatural, it may be granted or withheld according to the good pleasure of God. Consequently, salvation, to whomever it may be granted, is entirely of grace. The born-again Christian comes to see that God is in reality the author and perfecter of his faith, Hebrews 12:2, and that in this respect he has done a work for him which he has not done for his unconverted neighbor. In answer to the question, Who maketh thee to differ, and what hast thou that thou didst not receive, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he replies that it is God who has put the difference between men, especially between the redeemed and the lost. If any person believes, it is because God has quickened him, and if any person fails to believe, it is because God has withheld that grace which he has under no obligation to bestow. Strictly speaking, there is no such thing as a self-made man. The highest type of man is the one who can say with Paul, By the grace of God I am what I am. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, a mighty power went along with that command and gave effect to it. Lazarus, of course, was not conscious of any other than his own power working in him. But when he later understood the situation, he undoubtedly saw that he had been called into life wholly by divine power. God's power was primary, his was secondary, and would never have been exerted except in response to the divine. It is in this manner that every redeemed soul is brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. And just as the dead Lazarus was first called back into life and then breathed and ate, so the soul dead in sin is first transferred to spiritual life and then exercises faith and repentance and does good works. Paul emphasized this very point when he said that although Paul might plant and Apollos might water, it was God who gave the increase. Mere human efforts are unavailing. If a crop of wheat is to be raised, man can do only the most external and mechanical things toward the end. It is God who gives the increase, 
through the sovereign control of forces which are entirely outside the sphere of man's influence. Likewise, in regard to the soul, it matters not how eloquent the preacher may be, unless God opens the heart, there will be no conversion. Here especially man does only the most external and mechanical things, and it is the Holy Spirit who imparts the new principle of spiritual life. The scripture doctrine of the fall represents man as morally ruined, unable by nature to do any good thing. The truly converted Christian comes to see his inability and knows that he does not make himself eligible for heaven by his own good works and merits. He realizes that he cannot move spiritually, but as he is moved, that, like the branches of a tree, he can make no shoot, nor put forth leaves, nor bear fruit, except as he receives sap from the root. Or, as Calvin says, no man makes himself a sheep, but is created such by divine grace. The elect hear the gospel and believe, not always at the first hearing, but at the definitely appointed time. The non-elect hear, but disbelieve, not because they lack sufficient evidence, but because their inward nature is opposed to holiness. The reason for the two kinds of response is to be traced to an external source. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36.26 The heart in biblical language includes the whole inner man. Under the terms of the eternal covenant which was made between the Father and the Son, Christ has been exalted to be a meditorial ruler over the whole earth in order that he may direct the developing kingdom. This is one of the rewards of his obedience in suffering. His directing power is exerted through the agency of the Holy Spirit through whom his purchased redemption is applied to all for whom it was intended and under the precise conditions of time and circumstance predetermined in the covenant. We are told that it is by no ordinary providence of God that a man believes, but by the same mighty power that was exerted when Christ was raised from the dead. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20 As certainly as it was effective in the resurrection of Christ, it will be effective when put forth in an individual whether in a physical or a spiritual resurrection. The physical and the spiritual worlds are each the creation of God. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, 
abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.